Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Let's begin uh, looking at uh, Piku Day. We're in the first year of the triennial cycle, as you know, so we're starting at the beginning of every Parsha. So we're going to start at the beginning of uh, Piku Day, which is uh, Exodus chapter 38, verse 21. Someone want to begin? These are the records of the tabernacle, the tabernacle of the pact which were drawn up at Moses' bidding, the work of the Levites under the direction of Ithamar, son of Aaron the priest. Now Bezalel, son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, had made all that the Lord had commanded Moses. At his side was Aholiav, son of Ahisamach. Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, carver and designer, and embroiderer in blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and in fine linen. Okay. Ela Pikudea Mishkan. So we just got the the creation of the stuff that's going to go in the Mishkan. What is the first thing, now that everything's done, what is the first thing Moshe has them do? Ela Pikudea Mishkan. These are the, what does your English say? These are the records of the tabernacle. What does that mean? They were doing an inventory. They were doing an inventory. Why? Making sure everything was there in case they... So they just finished it. So... For posterity. For posterity. What does that mean? So that there would be a written record for... The generations that came after. That it was there? Mm -hmm. So we know for sure it was all here. Transparency. And here. Ha, 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 ha. Transparency. Because what, what does that mean? Because what, what does that imply? Everybody gave the stuff. Where did it go? Did it Everybody go? gave the stuff. Did it really go to the Mishkan? <laughs> Right? So, <laughs> right? So, Moshe. Are you making this up? I am not making this up. Um, we should take a lesson from. We should take a lesson from what Moshe orders, say the rabbis. That leadership of the community have a responsibility to be proactively transparent, not to wait. For someone to say, you know, Rabbi, there's a lot of money in your discretionary fund. And we notice that you've been wearing some really nice suits. So we've actually like uh, an accounting of the last six months of what your discretion, right? So you don't wait for that, say the rabbis. We should take a, a lesson from Moshe that when you are responsible for communal funds, when you are responsible for using those funds to do the work of the community, we should be proactively transparent. Cal asked me, what kind of checks do you want for your discretionary fund? I said, one with a carbon. So that there is not only a record that I keep, but there is a carbon copy of my handwriting, right, of the check, and it's open, ready for any member of our board of directors to come open that ledger and find exactly where every penny goes. That is how, say the rabbis, everybody can just relax. Nobody needs to be, it's not that I think somebody's suspicious, it's not that they're suspicious and they're just holding back, it's that if you start from a place of transparency, then everyone can relax. Does that mean that JDC financial should be easy to read? 
That is another topic, uh, Linda Rosen. Do you really have to account for everything that's in your discretionary? Of course. I should have to. Like, well, yes, it belongs to the community. It's not mine. That was really like, is somebody auditing you? No. But th- that's, that's, you just proved my point, right? Is that my, the stance of leadership that is in control of public funds used for public purposes is just best to be, just best to be transparent. actually audit rabbis and temples. They, they could. They could because it's a tax. It's a tax thing. Yes. This may be a silly Richard. question and slightly off topic, but... Can't you, as a rabbi, with your discretionary fund, make an anonymous contribution to a worthy cause? Like, in other words, in terms of the highest level of giving being uh, anonymous it, giving. It, um, I mean, I'm sure I could, but there's no reason for me to do that. Oh, okay. There's no reason for me to anonymously give from the rabbi's discretionary fund. No, no, I you gave so it anonymously. I can give anonymously. Oh. It's not mine. No. Oh, okay. It's so. not my money. Oh, all right. So well, you can't. But the discretionary fund is the public. It's the KI's money. I get to use it according to my discretion. Right. So the community donated. I write the check, but the community donated the funds. All right. So transparency. Oh, okay. So we, as a community sort of made the anonymous contribution. Correct. I then no, distributed. No, indivi- no individual. That's yeah. right. I'm directing your yeah. funds okay. towards a worthy yeah. cause because you trust me to do that. Of course we do. <laughs> All right. So um, uh, transparency. transparency. Thank you. Um, the rabbis also point out that, that once you have the mishkan and once God's presence fills the mishkan, it takes on this kind of... Right? It becomes... Nuclear. nuclear, right? And it takes on this aura, right, of, of something else. And so the rabbis come to say, just so we shouldn't forget, it's just yarn, right? It's just wood. It's just coins that have been melted down into sockets. We shouldn't get so overwhelmed with the stuff being this new thing that we forget that it's stuff. And it's supposed to point us Towards the divine, it isn't, you Israelites who are prone to make things out of gold and then have funky stuff go down, right? It's not that. It's not the stuff. It's God's presence that fills the space. So let's just make sure we're clear. The Mishkan is a list of stuff. Yes? Because we tend to get a little confused sometimes, don't we? It should be pointing us towards the divine. It isn't itself. Divine. Um, Amy, remember in here, you once showed like a slideshow mm-hmm. of like a lot of jewels and colors and stuff. Was, the, was that a Mishkan? Mm-hmm. I remember. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I yes. I sh- when, we, when we read the part about it being erected yes. last year, I showed you on that screen mm-hmm. all of the different elements of the Mishkan and then how it got put together. Remember? Right. So, yes, that's what we're talking about. Okay. So, is, is that part of why we don't compete with gorgeous cathedrals. Very nice, Sarah. Yes, I think... Yes, and some synagogues are cathedral synagogues, right? So some Jewish communities have gone to the 
to that place of, wait a minute, why can't we have beautiful, gorgeous synagogues for chidor mitzvah, for beautifying the mitzvah? So there's, remember there's always a, 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 a range and a pole. On, uh, the pole over here is it should be absolutely gorgeous because it's for divine purposes and right chidor mitzvah making a mitzvah beautiful and on the other is we shouldn't get too attached to materialism and we shouldn't be too attached to the things we need to remember it's about something else um, and within there there's a range and some Jewish communities fall way further towards the cathedral synagogue you know end of it um, I like KI's balance frankly right I love that we have a beautiful space that is meaningfully beautiful, right? That we have lots of windows to remind us we should be looking out to the world, that what we do in here should impact the world, that every, I don't know if you know this, but every wall uh, here in KI has a window internally into whatever rooms it's attached to so that we should remember, even though we're in separate rooms, we are one community. That what's going on in here is related to what's going on in there because there's a window that reminds me there's a sanctuary over there. From the sanctuary, there's a window into the library. I mean, there every... Every place has a window into the other place. Um, our foyer is built like a tent. You know, it's got that feel of being a tent that we want to be an open and welcoming tent um, for people. So I mean, I, so yes, there's a there's a range. There's also been hasn't there been a development over time because the temples, the first and the second temples, were more like cathedral. They were huge, etc. Edifices. Then after the destruction of the second temple, when Judaism became more prayer instead of sacrifice. It became a minion, ten people, and one could pray anyway. So it, I think it's vibrated and gone back and forth, has it not? Or, yeah, or, or and, and again, in different communities, you know, it, it takes on different um, levels of, of expression, the, the beauty, architectural beauty. And it would also relate to, at the particular time in question and for the particular community, what's the sort of the total economic power of the Jewish community. I mean, if, it, if it's a poor community living someplace, they're not going to put up a grand synagogue. Yes. Well, we could have done more here. No, we could have done right. more so, here. I mean, I think and didn't. And, and, and chose not to. Right. You mean at KI or in general in America? No, here. In other words, when I came here 18 years ago, we were in a temporary space, and I didn't mind that. You know, to me, it was a community that I was joining, and then very carefully all this was being selected for all those things and we could have certainly done something more ornate and a lot of people were drawn to this building. I know a lot of people left other synagogues when the new building came because they liked it because it was new. For one thing there was an attraction to the beauty. I mean there's no people left. I don't want to say which ones I mean they left other ones in mm -hmm. here but we certainly could have built something more like with more stained glass and that was a community choice. Mm -hmm. Um, if it's just stuff, which I agree with you, I kind of wonder why the Torah and the mezuzah have taken on such meaning, you know, kiss them, holy, it's become almost like it's not stuff anymore. It's a very, very, very interesting question. It's one I wrestle with a lot. Um, it's, a it's a very interesting tension that you point to. And it's true, there, there is a real tension around focusing so much on certain objects that it, that it gets very it's close to. Me. It's a little bit like some of the objects, you know, in churches that it's become holy objects. It's a, it's a very interesting thing. Um, and the place I actually feel it, I, I think I've said this in here before, um, 
the place I feel it the most is less with the Torah. I mean, I, I feel it there, but not as much as I do at the wall. At the wall, I really struggle. Um, there have been times where I have reached the plaza and said, I'm not doing it. Yep. I just, it's like that there's some level of, you know, there's there are rocks, there's stones. There, you know, it was an outside retaining wall. Like it, and, and the frenzy, you know, of, of politics and craziness around access to this walls. And then the, you know, the veneration of those stones, it, it starts to feel really problematic uh, for me. Other times, it's really moving to me. <laughs> and I never know, whenever I get on the plane, I'm like, we'll see <laughs> what it is this time. And I think it's something that as long as we are actively always discussing it and looking at it, I think it's an important thing for us to keep lifting up and to keep asking ourselves. Is this, is this a way of expressing my connection to what it points to? Or am I sliding into that place? Because I am no different from these people. I am no different. There are, there's a lot of me that wants a cow. Right? I, I long for a crucifix. I long for venerating iconography, right? So, because we're human, we long for some physical manifestation to relate to. We, we just, that's who we are. Our tradition, of course, is a tradition that says, too bad. You can long for it all you want, but you don't get to have it, you Israelites. Other people can have it. That's fine. But you, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. You have one expression. It is invisible, and that's y'all's. Other people can do what they want. You, Israel, don't get to do that. You have to like read through the Torah and try to figure out what God is in your own head. Yud hey vav hey. Isness wasness always will be ness. Ehyeh, tell them Ehyeh sent you. Tell them I am who I'm gonna be sent you. What the what? Right. So that's what you get, Israelites. You don't get you know raw. Sorry. And for us, that remains then the struggle when we don't have a physical, you know, something to relate to what, you know, we always have to check that impulse because um, our tradition leaves us longing for it. And, um, and, you know, a lot of us find it in things like talit, you know, in, in you know, other kind of physical aspects of ritual of, in mezuzah. Um, but, uh, but we always have to be careful because you're right, it slides towards idolatry. Going back to what Rita said, the thing about, at least for me, about Torah and mezuzah is <clears throat> it's the content to which we are connecting. Hopefully. Mezuzah, yeah, hopefully. With mezuzah, it's not the case. Even though a lot of people call them <laughs> the mezuzah, they think the case is what it's about. It's about the words that are inside of it. And it's the same thing with Torah, which is, however, different from a golden calf or a statue of a person. Because in Torah is our story. So, but the, I think the tension is, there's a story in the Talmud about if the building's on fire, should you rescue your wife or this Torah scroll? Mm-hmm. If you can only carry one of them out. I mean, th- that's what she's talking about. Is what they say. When, What's the ruling? <laughs> <laughs> if it's a struggle. You have to ask. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't know what the ruling is. So what Rita, I mean, is pointing to is that there, it, there really is this kind of, you know, 
this confusion between, right, it's supposed to be the words. Do you know this is why you, when the Hagbah lifts the Torah at the service, this is why they have to turn around with the Torah scroll open. Do you know this? Um, and then we say, Vizo, ta Torah, and we point our tzitzit. And this is the Torah that Moshe brought down from Sinai. Why? Because we shouldn't be looking at the parchment and going, that's the Torah, right? They have to turn it around so that you're looking at the words. It's the words that are important. It's the words we should be pointing to. It's the words we're venerating. It's the teachings we're venerating. The way we're supposed to live rightly with each other and the planet. That's what we're venerating, not the physical scroll. But if you Why? drop the Torah, that rule, are you supposed to fast for, you know? <laughs> it was just the same. Yeah. Richard? But, but I think the, the problem, the, the distinction between what we do with sort of venerating the word and contrasting it with iconography, say the iconography of the Christian church, sort of kind of, we've, the, the Jews are sort of like people of the word and sort of literacy has always been huge within the Jewish community. One of the reasons why there is as much iconography as you see in sort of the great cathedrals throughout Europe is they were built at a time when 99% of the people were illiterate and could not access the, either the Tanakh or the New Testament. If you look, for example, in the cathedral in Bath, in England, there's these two huge stained glass walls. One is 64 scenes from the Tanakh, and the other one is 64 scenes from like the life of Christ in the New Testament. All the iconography of the cathedrals was a way of telling the story of the Bible to illiterate people. So it's not like, so it's not like they fetishized everything. This was how the knowledge got transmitted. Well, I mean, and of course, we gum for gum, Jews right? Both and both. Jews read, Jews read yes. it out loud. Yes, in the synagogue. You know, it's all very, very personal because you're talking about when you go to Israel and you go to the law, and the law becomes, for me, all the previous generations in my family, including all those that were lost in wars and holocaust and all that. That, because that was there from a long time ago. And that's what's so moving. Mm -hmm. And uh, <coughs> I don't know, I, it really gets me every time. Can I, can I say one thing? No. I read a, uh, I thought it was a very beautiful, unusual midrash about what Bert was saying and the, the letters and that when Moshe was carrying down the original tablets and he was getting closer to the scene at the Golden Calf, that the letters were flying up off the tablets and going back up to Sinai. So when he got there, they were just blank and he broke them. They freaked out. But no, it's just, you know, we're going back up. Because they are not ready. Be they are not ready. Can I, can I ask a question? Yep. Yes. Preparation and the ritual. And yes. So this is really not here today. I mean, we don't do mm -hmm. this, right? Correct. So, like, kind of what happened? Is it just because, you know, we got kind of distilled down to what was really essential? What happened? What happened was the what what happened was the destruction of the second temple. With the destruction of the temple in seventy of the Common Era, the whole Israelite cult system is gone. Everything is gone. The, 
we were exiled from Israel. And I'm sorry. Because we had no access to Jerusalem. We, we weren't allowed in Jerusalem. And we were scattered all over. Right, we were, we were exiled. The temple had to be yeah. built in Jerusalem. The priesthood was, was demolished. The people were slaughtered or carried off into slavery. They were decimated. Decimated. This is, uh, Jerusalem was essentially blown up. Um, Jerusalem stone has a lot of oxygen in it. So when it gets heated to a certain point, it explodes. So the Romans like blew up Jerusalem and slaughtered most of the population, carried the rest off into slavery. So there was nothing. The Israelites were gone as a practicing people with its religion attached to its land. It's gone. The only reason we are here connected to this text at all is because there was after the first temple was destroyed, there was a big part of the population that went to Babylonia the Babylonian exile, and they never came back. They stayed in Babylonia. So all through that second temple period, there's a thriving community in New York. <laughs> right? The New York of the time. They sent taxes to the temple in Jerusalem for those priests to be clothed in the temple in Jerusalem, but they didn't want to go back to Jerusalem. They stayed in Babylonia at the academy. Learning, praying, developing liturgy, developing, you know, study. Um, that, that was their relationship. And they, all, and they sent taxes to pay for the temple in Jerusalem. So once the second temple was destroyed, that community in Babylonia and others like it become normative. That's now all that's left, right? So um, it's important for us to remember that... <coughs> And, I, and I, I like to really um, lift up that rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism that we inherit after Torah, that and Christianity are siblings. We do, Christianity is not a daughter faith of Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism, Judaism and Christianity are daughters of this. Are daughters of Biblical Israelite cult practice. So it went two ways. The priestly vestments, the laver, the altar is all preserved in Christianity. Biblical Israelite cult, blown up, gone. Rabbinic Judaism is one response to that. Let's study about it and reconstruct it. Another response is let's replicate it and reconstruct it. And those were the two responses to the destruction of biblical Israelite religion. Um, there, was, there was like a kind of a conscious idea. It wasn't really a conscious idea that we don't like all this fussy priest stuff. It's not really doing us any good. I mean, it was more just like it went away and then we just didn't. So, so it's it's a yeah 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 yeah. So it's it's a both and because the reason there was an academy in Babylonia is because there were already a you know a lot of people saying, you know, this is not doing it too much corruption, huge corruption. The prophets are all criticizing. Jesus was just another one of our guys criticizing. Jesus was one of our guys criticizing the corruption of the temple, as did the rest of them, right? All the, and we canonized them. 
<laughs> we canonized our critics. What, what are people? Who does that? We canonize our critics. Like who say, y'all are messing it all up. You've got it all wrong. Is this the fast I want? We read it every high holidays, right? Isaiah says, is this what I want? No, what I want is for you to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and break the, the chains of the yoke of those who are oppressed and suffering because we weren't doing it, right? We were having our lovely sacrifices and all these things that cost, you know, lots of money um, and we weren't living the teaching. And so there was already a lot of that going on, a lot of that criticism. Then history comes in and takes care of the argument. Those critics are the founders of what we practice as rabbinic Judaism. For, for the, the leaders of the Jews, the rabbis, the one that was threatened by Jesus, that's because he was talking about all the corruption and everything? And they were uh, to continue? Uh, that was not their biggest problem with Jesus. Their biggest problem with Jesus is that he was criticizing Rome. He was making trouble for the Jews because he was instigating too much criticism of things that were going on in then um, so Roman the occupied Israel. Big time. And it turns out they had every reason to be worried, didn't they? <laughs> Jesus lived when? Zero to thirty something. When was the temple destroyed? Forty years later. <laughs> and and the Jews were slaughtered, right? And exiled and gone. So the folks who were worried about what Jesus was doing were right to be worried. Do you think Jesus was the reason why the Romans destroyed the second temple? No. No. It's because the Jews rebelled. I mean they they took on Rome. They took on Rome, not because of Jesus. No. Yes. There is this wonderful book here, The Fallen Leaf. Yes. As a Driven Leaf. And doesn't that tell kind of first person about the time in Babylonia? Um, I haven't read it. Oh, okay. And it's first person uh, about the Jews in Babylonia and what life was like there. And then the beginnings of the rabbis in, in the land of Palestine. And it's, it's a great description of how that happened and why they stayed in Babylonia and the life they had there in the Babylonian Bible. Um, I, I, I think the Babylonian Talmud. Talmud. And, and I think you can get it probably in the library here. Yeah, I've heard it's a very good book. The, the, the interesting thing um, in connection to where we are in our calendar year... Purim is coming up. There are some people who hold, maintain, that the whole Megillah is actually exactly this time in history, talking about this time in history where the folks in Babylonia think they have it comfortable and easy and right, that even a Jew could rise to become the queen and the folks back in Israel are saying, don't get too comfortable, you Babylonian Jews, because it takes one vizier to rise to power. It takes one person to turn the king against the Jews, and you're all dead. Come back and help us rebuild. That it's after the destruction when you know, things are thriving elsewhere that people and right. people are living in poverty trying to put things back together you know, much later. That so we'll are, send you money. We'll send you, right, exactly. And, um, 
and that it's that the Purim is all about criticizing those folks who did not come back and who were loving it in Shushan. Right? That's that's from Christians. From the Christians. What? But they, where did that theory come from? Why do they think the Jews, because of the way the Jews acted, the Romans killed Jesus? Because because the Jews didn't oppose it. Um, but it, but they have their own reasons. I mean, it's another discussion. But they had their reasons for anti-Semitism being central to the to that early experience. I'm sorry. So we we will have. We should probably have a. History class, yeah. I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so as soon as we get an assistant rabbi, yeah. we will work on a history class because these are important questions about um, how and what happened. Where are we? Uh, we're still on the first sentence. Okay, very good. We're getting clipping right along here. So um, the, another question that the rabbis, or another place the rabbis um, open up an interesting interpretation is it says... Um, that Bitzal El, right, from the tribe of Judah, made all that God commanded Moses. What do you think the rabbis do with that? There's something miraculous here. What's the miraculousness here? The meaning of his name, is that what you're getting at? Well, they tie it to the meaning of his name. What's the miracle? Bitzal El made everything that God commanded Moses. They're at different times. They are at the same time. But it doesn't say that God commanded Bezalel. How does Bezalel know how to make what God commanded Moses? His great-grandmother Miriam. Huh? <laughs> I'm looking at the bottom of page 547 in the green book. Okay, and what does it say? The source of Bezalel's inspiration was none other, of course, than his great-grandmother Miriam. Wonderful. So this is how they tie his name to... This idea that, wait a minute, how could Bitzalel know how to make what God commanded Moshe? Moshe, when he sees, he says, ah, you must have been Bitzalel. Tzel meaning shadow. You must be in the shadow of God, for you understood everything that needed to be done without being, you know, exactly told. Doesn't it also say that Bezalel had wisdom put in him by God? So God of, had given him talent? Of course. He is a chacham lev. He is wise of heart. But if you look at this, the rest of this, um, carver, designer, embroiderer. Um, from where do they know this? Where were they just now? Egypt. Oh, Egypt. What were they doing in Egypt? Slaves. Huh. Huh. Yeah. Mud brick. Right? They were not... Uh, carving, designing, embroidering, metalworking, you know, doing micro etching in stones. That's a very big thing in Egypt. Um, but they weren't doing that. How did all of these artisans know how to make? This is very detailed what we get about the Mishkan, right? They have to take gold and put it over a stone and pound it so thin that they can cut it into thread to put in the garments, right? They make gold thread. How do they know how to do this? Exactly. exactly. That they were, they had potential within them, and when they are given a communal building, a project that is connected to the divine and connected to serving the people's relationship with God, they are, it's like, like it's unleashed, right? There's all this, this nascent talent, this nascent 
artistry in there ready to come out, but they haven't, they don't know it until, right, B'Tzalel, you know, calls them. They are chokh they are wise in their heart and skilled in their hearts, um, and now they have an opportunity to, and it comes out. So remember that, each of you, who thinks that you are not yet ready to chair a committee here at KI. Within you lies a chairwoman, a chairman, Reuben, trust me. Even in you, there lies someone who's ready to head a committee here at KI. What is it? What is it? Poor Reuben. He was a boy, wasn't he? A boy? Yeah. A man? Oh, because we were taught previously that he was like a 13-year-old boy. Ah, so it's, it's from the Midrash. It's in the rabbinic tradition. It, you know, the rabbis have great... Very Imagination. Which I thought was the most incredible piece of the story. Good. That's good. Okay. Look at us. We are going on to the second paragraph. Ha. 24. All the gold that was used for the work and all the work of the sanctuary, the elevation offering of gold, came to 29 talents and 730 shekels by the sanctuary weight. The silver of those of the community who were recorded came to 100 talents and 1,775 shekels by the sanctuary weight. A half shekel ahead, half a shekel by the sanctuary weight. For each one of those who entered in the records from the age of 20 up, 603,550 men. The 100 talents of silver were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets for the curtain. 100 sockets to the 100 talents, a talent, a socket. And of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the post, overlay for their tops, and bands around them. The copper from the elevation offering came to 70 talents and 2,400 shekels. Of it, he made the sockets for the entrance of the tent of meeting, the copper altar and its copper grating, and all the utensils of the altar the sockets of the enclosure round about and the sockets of the gate of the enclosure and all the pegs of the tabernacle and all the pegs of the enclosure round about. All right. So this is the, right, the detailed record, the detailed accounting of the shkalim that we get. What do they mean by sockets? Because when I hear the word socket, I think electrical sockets. So- sockets that hold, the, that hold a peg. It holds the planks. Remember, I just asked that two weeks ago. I'm like, socket? Socket? Yeah. What's... It's like your bone. I know. Right, so that, take it apart. that's what holds the structure in place. Um, okay, so somebody want to read, please. You now have before you a diagram. What temperature is it in here? Seriously. Isn't it warm? Somebody want to begin reading? It's not me. Wait, it's like 75 degrees in here, isn't it? I'm loving it. You just press the down button. Of the blue, purple, and crimson yarns. So look, you can follow along. Of the blue, purple, and crimson yarns, they also made the service vestments for officiating in the sanctuary. They made Aaron's sacral vestments, as the Lord had commanded Moses. The effort was made of gold, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine twisted linen. All right, do you all see the aphode? Mm -hmm. Yes? Look at the bottom left corner. Do you see what it's pointing to? Thank you. 
Yes? So that is the over piece that's made of blue, crimson, purple yarn, yes? Okay, go on. They hammered out sheets of gold and cut threads to be worked into designs among the blue, the purple, and the crimson yarns and the fine linen. They made for it attaching shoulder pieces. They were attached to its two ends. The decorated band that was upon it was made like, was made like it, of one piece with it, of gold, blue, purple, and crimson yarns and fine twisted linen, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Do you see the shoulder pieces? Yes? Okay, good. They boarded the lazuli stones with frames of gold, engraved with seal engravings of the names of the sons of Israel. They were set on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the Israelites, as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, so you've got those stones, and then micro-etched into the stones are the 12 tribes. So this was um, a very well-attested specialty of Egypt, was micro-engraving in stone. So have you all seen scarabs, you know, and all those things that are stone that are, so now imagine small, and then imagine like writing. So on, on those, not the just carving. Hebrew names. So the Hebrew names of the tribes would have been on the stone. So we know that this is attested that it is uh, an industry of Egypt. Do we know, has, have any of those been recovered? No. Bummer. No. Maybe on eBay. <laughs> you, don't laugh. You can buy lots of this stuff on eBay. Lots. So the Khoshan, um, lots and lots of jewelry right now is very po- it's very popular to have the 12 stones uh, in jewelry. I'm not saying the original ones. No, oh, the original. If you if you look in the ark over there, the second Torah from the right, you see there's 12 mm-hmm. stones. Right, and if you look in our sanctuary, up on, well, up here, there's 12 squares all the way at the top for the 12 tribes, and in the sanctuary, the Star of David on that wall has 12 triangles, each one for a tribe. And for the, and it is reminiscent of, yeah, of this. The colors are reminiscent of this Choshen. No, the menorah in the temple, the seven-branched menorah was the menorah of, of the Hanukkah story. We make an eight-tiered, we make an eight-branched one because we need the eight nights. They didn't. They had a, the regular seven-branched. But what did they light on the, what did they light the eight night? They didn't. They, it was about lighting it every day. Every day the menorah had to be lit again. And they only had enough oil for the menorah to be lit one day. Hanukkah but the... The festival of dedication of the, of the temple needed to be eight days. And, it, and they had enough oil, the miracle says, to last all those eight days. Yes? So just looking at this, uh, it, it brought to mind um, a task that I had to take in Catholic school. They would give us a picture like this of the priest with all of their vestments, and we would have to name each vestment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like, like this, you mean? Right, just like this. It would look just yeah, like, it's like it was a little bit of a different <laughs> outfit, you know? Right. And then it was preparation for doing sacristy, which was 
where the girls would go back in the back of the altar where the priest vestments were, and we actually would press them and fold them and put them away and clean the chalice and clean them. And I did that in fifth grade all through the year until my friend Anna Brigno was caught smoking a Marlboro light in the soccer stadium. <laughs> <laughs> I was completely banned from doing the worst sin ever. Take care of that task. I'm just right. thinking about how much it is to be raised as a Catholic, well, ironing the priest's vestments. Do you see the things we have lost in our tradition? The girls of the synagogue ironing the talitot of the rabbis. What has happened to us? Because? Well, so, but, but the, So this this was this was the original tension. This was the original when we talked about there was already a lot of pushback is because it's like what makes him so special? And and the and the pushback against that system was shouldn't it be how they behave? Shouldn't it be about their level of learning and their level of commitment to expressing and exploring the values and ethics and ways that we're supposed to treat each other and be in the world and that makes somebody special you know and so there was so much criticism of because you were born a Kohen we're going to pressure linen like you know there, there was huge amounts of pushback and if you look and if you look at um, online you can find um you know, I showed you video of um, the Mishkan. What I don't think I brought it to you last time, but there's one that was like really amazing, and it is the vestry of like the second temple. You know, so like behind the scenes, you know, where all of the linen garments of all the priests, you know, in this huge temple complex, it's the it's where all their vestments would have been and how they would have been cared for. And like when you see what a huge operation that was, you do get the sense of what makes them fitter for service than a regular Israelite who's a really good, good person. And this is why there was something left when the temple was destroyed because there was enough there was enough of that happening at the ground level that when the priesthood was destroyed um, Judaism was already f- developing um, and, it, and it is maintained the priesthood was maintained in the church um, I don't know what I was going to say about that the breast please yes the breast piece was made in the style of the ephod, of gold, blue, purple, and crimson yarns, and fine twisted linen. It was square. They made the breast piece, breast piece double, a span in length and a span in width, double. They set in it four rows of stones. The first row was a row of carnelian, chrysolite, and emerald. The second row a turquoise, a sapphire, and an amethyst. The third row a jacinth, an agate, and a crystal, and the fourth row, 
a beryl, a lapis lazuli, and a jasper. They were encircled in their mountings with frames of gold. The stones corresponded in number to the names of the sons of Israel, 12 corresponding to their names, engraved like seals, each with its name for the 12 tribes. So do you see that on here? Yes? The breastplate of judgment? Yes? Each with the 12 stones. Why are there 12 stones for the tribes on here, do you think? To unify them? To show they're all important and together? Right. To democratize the, the tribal system. And for the priests to remember, you do not serve for you. You serve on behalf of the people. Right? Your job is to represent the unification of the tribes as a people before the unifying only one. Um, don't ever forget that, who you serve. Are the stones in an order? I mean, are there are the Kohanes on top, or these 12 stones, are they always in the same order or priority? Um, so yeah, they are, the, they are in the same order. Um, I, I have never studied what that order is. It's not the birth order? I, I don't know. I don't know. It might be. I don't know. I don't know if the Leah tribes and the Rachel tribes are in different. Well, if it doesn't say in Torah, how would we know the order? It might say it in Torah. I actually don't know. It says what the stones were. Yeah, I don't know if it says ever what the order is is associated with which stone. Who's in the top row? We don't know. Right. And if we're not told, that's why. (laughs) Right? If we're not told, that's probably why. Yes. So, isn't it, I never heard so much about somebody weaving, um, whatever you're weaving. Looms? It's found archaeologically in Israel. Yeah, there's... There would have been a lot of them found. Or no, because it doesn't survive. It, it doesn't survive the environment well. It would. Huh? Looms were made out of wood? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Still are. Yeah. All right. So, um, uh, 15. On the breastpiece, they made braided chains of corded work and pure gold. They made two frames of gold and two rings of gold and fastened the two rings to the two ends of the breastpiece, attaching the two golden cords to the two rings at the ends of the breastpiece. Then they fastened the two ends of the cords to the two frames, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. They made two rings of gold and attached them to the two ends of the breastpiece at its inner edge, which faced the ephod. They made two other rings of gold and fastened them on the front of the ephod, low on the two shoulder pieces, close to its seam above the decorated band. <laughs> the breastpiece was held in place by a cord of blue from its rings to the rings of the ephod, so that the breastpiece rested on the decorated band and did not come loose from the ephod, as the Lord had commanded Moses. All right, so we are getting, look how much detail we are getting. Look how intricate the instructions are. Look how much it took, right, to make each one of these things, to figure it out, to engineer it, to actually make it. So they all, they get it all done. They get all this work done. It's taken all of, presumably, a lot of time. And then later on in our, uh, in our portion at chapter 40, we're told, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of meeting. That is three months from this. What's that about? Three months. They've gone through all of this labor, all of this work. They've done the accounting. They, he's made the list of every single thing. They've done the inventory. It's all ready to go. 
three months from now, you're going to erect it. Lots of rehearsal time. But, Look at Chef of Gold. But if, okay, so backing away from all this, God, God is telling the Israelites, you, you're, you're to be a holy people. And later on, we're, we learn about what being holy means. Mm -hmm. And usually it means how you act. Mm -hmm. So why is all this necessary? So why is all of this necessary? Because God said so. <laughs> but but if God traditionally. But if God but if but if God wants the Israelites to be a holy people and act in a holy manner and whatever that however that's interpreted, what why what is the necessity of building such a monumental, expensive thing? For the rabbis? They understand this. Okay, the, the simple answer yeah. is anthropologically, archaeologically, this is what people did. Right. What people did was they had a shrine mm -hmm. and you had a priesthood. Right. People brought offerings. Mm -hmm. The priest took the offerings in to the God right. and offered it there. The huge Israelite innovation is there is no Pesel. There's no statue of the God mm -hmm. and... The priesthood makes, and, and the theophany is to all of the people so that the God is not in the shrine with only the priests knowing the ritual, meaning you, plebeian, regular, Ra worshiper, don't know anything about how to worship Ra. All you know is to bring your dove to the priest. Without the priest, you and Ra, <laughs> you are not talking, right. right? The priest is necessary. So even though there's still a priesthood, we, all of the instructions, you will teach all of this to your children, meaning the people could hold the priesthood accountable. We know what y'all do in that shrine, and you do it on our behalf. Do not slip up. Um, we know every penny and where it goes. We know it goes into that socket. So... So that is the radical Israelite innovation, is that the God is, is accessible to all the people. It is an Am Kadosh, as you said, a holy people, a nation of priests, Torah tells us. So the priesthood isn't better than anybody else. They are put at risk. Remember, if they do something wrong, they're nuclearized, vaporized. So they are put at risk on behalf of the people, it is their job to guard the sancta. In the ancient world, in biblical Israel, they could not conceive of another way. They wouldn't have conceived of another way to do that. What they already did was radical. Um, the rabbis, when they try to understand why, because they're not going to go, well, that's the way ancient, <laughs> ancient Near Eastern peoples worshipped. Right. God forbid. The rabbis understand the Mishkan as a gift. The rabbis understand that God understood, understands lovingly, that we human beings need KI. We should be able, each of us, to access the divine on our own at home. We should be able to just be good people and learn the ethics and values about how we're supposed to treat each other. But, but God understands that we need KI. We need a place that we can come. We need a place we can focus our attention where there are people who help us, you know, hopefully, um, experience that in a different way together, lead us ritually through important 
life cycle you know, events or for them it was the Mishkan. For us it is the Beit Tefillah, right? It is the place that we, that we gather. It is the Beit Knesset. It is the place of gathering. Um, and they in some ways understand it as kind of the atonement in some ways for our longing to, to be connected to material stuff in a bad way. The calf is one way we can manifest so, our longing to express ourselves so let's materially. Re, let's, recast, let's recast our wealth in a more positive yes, way. Yes, and God will give us the instructions okay. because obviously we can't figure it out for ourselves because then we make cows, <laughs> you know, and do bad things. So um, we need um, we need the mishkan to redirect our material okay. selves towards something that's going to point towards holiness. Oh, like good. The, uh, the team building, you know, <laughs> we all think of things. Everybody, okay, if you're going to be a people, let's get together and do something together. <laughs> let's have them build something. Um, as a I, way of I think community. it is like identity building. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, there's a group of people that come together and they're not sure, and they like, just came out of Egypt, and some of them have doubts. And it's good to have, like, it's like what the priest is wearing is like the team jersey. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> We're royal children of God, all of us! Yay! Blue, purple, crimson, the royal colors! You can have the rabbis just dressed as the rabbis and being people. It's you need a little push towards okay, like who are we? Let's all get together, do a big project, and dress our priests up. Alright. That that's an extension of what Rita said before about the things having the importance because those things like the mezuzah, whatever, are the things outside of the you know, at the temple that remind us of God on a daily basis in our home when we're not here. The, I mean, that's why the emphasis is on those things. So we keep God in our mind wherever we are, right? That like you were saying that you struggle with the things. Yeah, I'm sorry, I missed the first part of that. I'm sorry. I feel like that's an extension. Those The things that you're saying that we, that we place emphasis the on. The mezuzah. And all of the Jewish ritualistic objects. That's just an extension of the synagogue. I mean, when we're not at the synagogue, to remind us of God. Um, for some people. For other people, they don't have an attachment to the synagogue. Their attachment to their kiddush cup is because it comes from their grandfather, their grand, great-grandfather. I mean to God. I don't mean to their synagogue. I mean that that's their connection to God. Yeah, yes, those are objects, yes, that point towards the holy. Yes. I think um, there's another aspect to this. And that is in the world, there's bad guys and gals, and they join together, and the good guys and gals need to join together as well. And so part of getting together as a community is also reinforcing and being able to work together for good. It's not just a question of we come to KI just for ourselves, just to have, just to feel good and be godly ourselves, but that Together, we can be an army for good, or army's a bad word, but you know what I'm saying? A force for... Yeah, we can be a force for good as a group where, you know, two plus two equals five. All right, Linda, read page two of Rabbi Shefa Gold, please, at the top. Because you, you hinted, you hinted at it. So you... Yep. Moses is told to wait for the first of Nisan, which is the month during which we are liberated from the narrowness of Egypt. 
it is the time of the re recreation of the world. In Nissan, color and life return to the earth. Flowers begin to show their buds. The grasses sprout their new green. The miracle of rebirth surrounds us. During those cold, dark months of winter waiting, it seemed like nothing was happening. But now we realize that beneath the ground, beyond our awareness, miracles were stirring. The waiting time was necessary to this rebirth of possibility. Go on. Still, this waiting time is a test of our faith and patience. You think? I have done all the correct things. I have been faithful to my practice. I have followed the rules. I have crafted each piece of the Mishkan with beauty and precision. I have said the right words and acted righteously. So why has grace not descended? Why hasn't my life come together in the way it's supposed to? Why do I not feel loved and appreciated? Why is it still dark and cold? Why is the world filled with misery? During this long winter waiting, all the voices of impatience emerge as the spiritual challenge of peduke and faith rises to the challenge as we learn to wait and intuit the miracle that is stirring beneath the frozen ground. As always, for me, Rabbi Shefa Gold gets at the amazing truth of, of a portion of our portion. So they erect it. Everything's done. It's all beautiful. It's all ready. They have the instructions. They have the list. It's all, it's all good. It's all ready to go. And what does God say? Wait. Wait. So I'm just going to say that it seems like our history is full of us waiting. And God comes when he, she, whatever it is, comes not when we're ready. This is a profound spiritual teaching. This is a profound truth that we can have it all ready. I'm ready. Let's go. I've done all the schooling. I've done all the training. I've done all the auditioning. I've done all the interviews. I've done, like, whatever it is, you know, I'm ready. And the spiritual teaching is that that is not how the universe works. That we can be prepared and we have to be. We have to build, we have to get everything ready. That's our end of it. And when it's ready, it will be erected. And when it is finally erected, it is filled with the glory of the Holy Only. It is filled with God's kavod, God's intensified, concentrated presence. And we must do the incredibly difficult work of waiting. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.